who do you think of when you think of a leader? Um, do you think of yourself as one? Um, do you think of Winston Churchill? Do you think of Martin Luther King, Joan of Arc, uh, Oprah? Do you think of Aragorn? Do you think of Hermione Granger? I think there's this tendency in us when we hear the word leader or think of leadership, we think of these larger-than-life characters that are really hard to relate to but really inspiring anyway. And this week we're starting a new series uh, called Movers and Shakers. It's a study through the book of Exodus, but particularly we're looking at uh, the life of Moses and leadership lessons we can learn from Moses. And I think sometimes when you look at a person like Moses, a character like that in the Bible, they can be really hard to relate to. Uh, we get this mental image or this actual image of Moses like this, and he's carrying this huge stone tablet over his head. He's got lightning bolt coming from his hands. At 90, years, at 90 years old, he has arms as big as Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he's just this guy that's like, holy cow, he's intimidating, and I can't connect with this guy at all. And then when we look at his life, it gets even more intimidating. He's the guy that rescued Israel from Egypt. Uh, he had a staff that hit the water, and it parted the Red Seas. He struck a rock, and water came out so they could drink it. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. He gave us the Ten Commandments. I know God gave him all this stuff and empowered him for this, but this guy's life was massive. Historically, one of the biggest influential leaders in, in Israel's history, one of the biggest leaders in the Bible, and we can look at him and say, there's no way I'll ever amount to that, and honestly, that's probably, probably true. Um, you won't be Moses. We look at leaders that have this huge place in history, like Martin Luther King or Joan of Arc or something, we think we can't relate to that because we don't have that kind of platform. We don't have that kind of position or power or that moment in history. And so when we think of Moses and leadership, we might want to check out. But I want to challenge you guys a little bit on that. And really the whole premise of today's message is that we are all capable of leadership. John Maxwell is a leadership guru, written a million books. He has this quote on leadership that I think is really powerful, a great summary. He says, leadership is not about titles, positions, or flowcharts. It is about one life influencing another. So leadership is not about platform, it's about influence. And if you're a leader, another way of thinking of that is you're an influencer. You're someone who has influence. And given that definition of leadership, that a leader is an influencer, I think everyone in this room is a leader. Everyone in this room has the potential to be an influencer in the circles in which you live and operate in your day-to-day lives. And given that definition of leadership, I think it opens up the possibility for all types of leadership. And it's not just guys that are shooting lightning from their hands. No, but there's other types of leaders as well. And one guy that sticks out to me recently um, is a different kind of leader is this guy, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> we, um, as a staff, we went to Nashville a few weeks ago and for a conference. And at that conference, they gave us a pre-screening of a documentary coming out by Mr. Rogers called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And by the end of that movie, everyone on staff was just ugly crying <laughs> because what a beautiful life. Mr. Rogers was a pretty ordinary guy whose superpower was kindness and empathy, the ability to pay attention and be fully present with another human being and see them fully for who they are and take joy in that and see beauty in that. There's a scene in the movie that's really striking to me. There's a child prodigy playing the piano, and Mr. Rogers isn't watching the piano. He isn't watching the child's playing with his hands, but he's staring at the child's face because he wants to see the joy and the emotions that this child has and experiences when he's playing piano 
doing what he was created to do. And just a really powerful moment. You can just see Mr. Rogers just enthralled by this kid's mastery of the instrument. So his superpower was just kindness, empathy, eye contact. I've tried this since seeing that movie. I've tried this a handful of times with my kids. I have four, four small daughters. And I'm just telling you, the ability to pull Mr. Rogers, to just fully engage with someone and make that eye contact and be fully present is powerful. It's magical. I've, I've seen a, my two-year-old who is classic for crazy meltdowns turn it off when given full attention and empathy. It doesn't always work with her, by the way. <laughs> but I've seen it work. There's something powerful there. So Mr. Rogers is obviously a leader and obviously a person of influence, but he didn't necessarily always have the platform. He started off as, as a minister who was frustrated with television programming, wanted to do something about it and create this low-budget thing where he wanted to create experiences for people, for children to, to feel safe to express themselves. So he had influence before he had platform. Eventually he grew into the platform. But Mr. Rogers is a different type of leader who used his influence and his power of kindness to impact so many people around the world in powerful ways. So leadership isn't just about being this larger-than-life character. Leadership can look in a, a, a thousand different ways. And because of that, because leadership is influence, I just want to encourage you, we're all influencers. We all have the ability to lead out with influence. With that in mind, I want us to look at Exodus chapter 2, and we'll just see some, some parallels and pull some things out of that. So let's just read that text right now. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, for those of you not familiar with the book of Exodus, I want to give some background and context just to kind of set up the story. Because if you don't know anything about the Bible or the Old Testament or this part, it seems kind of weird that, that, that she would send a kid down the river. Okay? Maybe it seems weird anyway. But in the book of Genesis, you have this guy named Abraham who was called out of Ur. God said, I want you to leave where you're at, and I'm going to show you a place where you're going to go. It's going to be the promised land. It's going to be Israel. So Abraham took his family, and he traveled and traveled and traveled. And eventually, God gave him a child, Isaac, who, gave him, uh, who had children, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob had uh, 12 children, and one of them was this guy named Joseph. Now, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, um, sold in, and went to Egypt. And eventually, Joseph became a man of power and influence in Egypt even though he started off as a slave there. So when he rose to power, there was a great famine that hit Israel, that hit the rest of Joseph's family, and they came and pleaded. And eventually, by the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph has died, but his family is safe and secure in Egypt, where they're flourishing, they're, they're growing as a family, um, and that's the end of Genesis. Now, the beginning, of, the beginning of Exodus picks up a few generations later, and that small family of Joseph has, has grown and multiplied into a people, into a tribe, into a nation. Some estimate around a million people. 
And Pharaoh is seeing this tribe that started off as a family, and he becomes afraid because they're growing, their their crops are successful, they're they're good at farmers, um, they're having lots of children and expanding, and and Pharaoh becomes afraid that eventually this tribe is going to overtake Egypt in power. And so Pharaoh, in Exodus chapter 1, issues an edict. I want the midwives of Egypt who are giving, helping uh, Hebrew women give birth, I want them to take the sons that are born and toss them in the Nile River and kill them. Now, at the end of chapter 1, it says that the Egyptian midwives disobeyed that order, and they protected. And that's the context in which we go into in, in, in Exodus chapter 2. Moses is born. Uh, his mother hides him for three years until he can no longer be hidden, um, and he's a little more stable, and she sends him down the river, and he gets rescued by the Pharaoh's daughter. So that's the story we just read. So that's the, the background context. So now we're in chapter 2, we're in the story here, and, and here's what stands out to me at the beginning. It, it, the first sentence says that Moses was born to a Levite man and a Levite woman. Now for us, we have no idea what that means, right? Um, w- what that means for the Jewish person is that Moses was born into a very special family, the tribe of Levi. Now the tribe of Levi in, in Israel was the tribe that was set apart to be priests and worship leaders. We have the book of Leviticus, right? It's a really hard book to read. Leviticus was written to the Levitical priesthood to the worship leaders and the priests and religious rulers of that tribe. So Moses was born into that family. It's the Bible's way, it's the Bible's version of saying, Luke Skywalker, your father was a very powerful Jedi. This story is told over and over and over again in in every form of literature we have where uh, the hero of the story has a mysterious yet powerful background. Jesus, his father was pretty powerful too, right? Um, so we see this kind of this theme throughout Scripture and also just throughout literature. So Moses was born into a powerful bloodline. That's why that first sentence is given to us, to show that he was special in a sense. He was set apart. And then the, the, then the story says next that the mother looked at Moses, and she saw that he was a fine boy. And that sounds like a British expression or something. It's a fine boy. You know? um, it's kind of a weird thing. It stands out as a weird thing. But when you go to the Hebrew language there for fine boy, it's the Hebrew word Tov, or Tov, T-O-V, which is the Hebrew word for good. It's the same word that God uses to describe creation when he makes it in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created everything, and he saw that it was good. And when he made man in his image, God saw that it was good. And so what the text here in Exodus is saying is that when the mother saw Moses as a baby, she knew that he was of God. He was of the image of God. He was of the essence of God. Now, there's some Jewish urban legend about what that means. Some, some stories say that means that, that you know, Moses was born already circumcised. Other legends say that when Moses was born, a light filled the entire room. There's different legends about what that means when he was born, that, that he was good, he was a fine boy. But the bare foundation that's, that's for sure certain is that when she saw her son, she saw an image bearer. And what's good news for us today is that the, that's the same thing that all of us are. When God creates us, when he breathes life into us, we are of his image and of his essence and of his nature. We are, when we're born, good. Before we speak a word, before we have a thought, before we take a breath, we are in his image. Before Moses was even close to trying to be qualified to be a leader, God imbued him with the image of God and the power of God. He was born an influencer. And we are born influencers. We are born created in the image of a creator and call to be creative ourselves, to create change in the world for good. That's what it means to be an influencer, to be good, to be in the image of God. Now, David says it like this in Psalm 139. He says, for you, God, 
God formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. That's what David's saying there. Before I was even thought of, you imbued me with purpose. You imbued me with your image. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Julian of Norwich says it like this, and I just love this quote. We are not just made by God. We are made of God. We are not just made by God. We are made of God. We are of his essence. We are in his image. We are imbued with creative power and influence and leadership. Thomas Merton is a Catholic monk from the, monk from the 20th century, and he says it like this. A tree gives glory to God by being a tree. From being what God means it to be, it is obeying God. It consents, so to speak, to God's creative love. It is expressing an idea which is in God and which is not distinct from the essence of God. And therefore, a tree imitates God by being a tree. Another way of saying that is we imitate God when we are fully ourselves. When we fully discover and grow into and live into uh, the person that God has created us to be in Christ. Everyone in this room is an image bearer. Everyone in this room has a sliver of an expression of the nature of God. The beauty of the church and the beauty of community is that when we come together in wholeness, we're all different reflections of God that come together and create a fuller picture of the vastness of God. Everyone in this room has different personalities, different experiences, different backgrounds, different past, different passions, different talents. We're each unique slivers and expressions of God. And when we come together collectively, we give a fuller, more beautiful, diverse picture of the greatness and the beauty and the creativity of God. So you most imitate God when you live into and grow into the person that God created you to be. You're an image bearer. You are a reflection. You are an impression. You are an influencer of God in this world. Like Moses. When Moses' mom looked at him as a child, she said, this child is good. He is of God. We have that same heritage. The second thing that jumps out to me in this story is this idea that our past doesn't define us or disqualify us from being influencers. It actually prepares us and equips us. What you've done and what's been done to you doesn't disqualify you from being an influencer now. And in many cases, it actually prepares you for how you can be an influencer today. So what you've done. Uh, in the next story in Exodus, which we'll get to next week, Moses murders an Egyptian. And God didn't say that this is something that disqualifies him from being a leader down the road. Um, Paul, later on in the New Testament, is a murderer of the church before he becomes a leader of the church. And, and God doesn't use Paul's past to disqualify him from leadership in the present. I would caveat that a little bit and say, I think with Moses and Paul and anyone who has made great mistakes in their past, the journey towards influence from that is repentance, humility, and growth. It doesn't mean that your past doesn't impact you. It doesn't mean that your past may not come up to, to bite you in some ways. But if you can learn and grow, if you can forgive yourself, if you can learn from that, repent, and move forward in a different direction, you can be used by God. Uh, and your past won't disqualify you. There's plenty of stories, and the story after story in Scripture of how someone's mistakes and failures 
isn't the end of their story. We look at Jacob, who cheated his father, who cheated his brother, who was kind of a snake. But eventually he grew and he repented and he developed into a person that God would use as an influencer. We look at Zacchaeus in the Gospels, who stole from the poor as a tax collector. And as he began to to, to follow Jesus, he repented of that sin of thievery. He grew from that and he actually flipped that and became a generous person. He gave to the poor rather than taking from them. So his past didn't disqualify him. It was an opportunity for growth through repentance. So what you've done isn't a disqualifier. And what's been done to you isn't a disqualifier. What's been done to you in your past does not disqualify you. It does not define you. In fact, oftentimes it's the platform from which you can influence. And I would say it this way. Your pain shapes your passion. Your past pain can shape your passion. We look at Moses. Moses grew up in a very broken situation. The people around him, his people, were being murdered and the children were being thrown into the river. He grew up witnessing the oppression of the Israelites under the, 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 the slavery and the bondage of the Egyptians. He grew up seeing his people being beaten, mocked, and worked literally to death. That was his pain. But that pain shaped his passion, so years later he would come back and he would bring redemption and deliverance for his people. His past pain shaped his passion towards being this type of leader. Mr. Rogers, as a child, was, was overweight and often bullied and didn't have a chance to, he didn't have a place to share and express his emotions and how he processed all that. And so as he grew up, he realized, I need to create a safe place for children to, to understand their feelings to, and to express them so they, they, they can be healthy human beings. So Mr. Rogers' pain shaped his passion. His pain shaped how he would influence the world. For me, I grew up, when I was young, my sister passed away. She was, she was three, I was about seven or eight, and that broke me and my family for a long time. And I'm sure it's still broken, it's, we're still broken in some ways from that. But I know that God has used that past pain to, to kind of toughen me up, to be able to handle these types of tragedies, and to be calm and still and strong in those moments of difficulty. Also from that, my dad became an absentee father. He became a workaholic. And so I sought out a father role in the church, and I found men that were pouring into me. And from that experience of them pouring into me, which wasn't a pain, it was actually a blessing, I realized that's what I want to do. I want to be a man that helps other men live a full life in Christ. So our past pain can shape our passion. The word passion actually just means suffering. You know, the passion of the Christ, the suffering of the Christ. And we think of passion like, oh, I'm really passionate about ultimate Frisbee. It's not quite that. Maybe, maybe you are. Passion means suffering. Passion means, if I, say, if I ask you, what are you passionate about? What I'm asking you is, what are you willing to suffer for? What are you willing to suffer for? So oftentimes, our past pain, our past suffering, shapes our passion. What we're willing to suffer for. And what we say is, I've, su- I've suffered from this in the past, and I'm willing to suffer again so that others don't have to suffer in the same way. Our pain can shape our passions. Also, our past just prepares us for the present. It prepares us in ways to, to allow us to be a bridge between the kingdom of God and the people around us. Moses was, was raised by two families, essentially. His mother kind of came in and raised him under the Jewish uh, religion and Jewish values and Jewish culture. So he understood who he was and his identity as a Jewish man. But he also was raised under the umbrella of the Egyptian Empire. He understood their religious structure. He understood their culture. He understood their language. And so a time came decades later where God used both of those past experiences to let Moses be a bridge between Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, 
in, in Pharaoh in the culture of Egypt. He could speak both languages. He understood both religious structures and cultures, and he was a bridge between the two. God used his past to allow him to be an influencer uh, later on in life. In the same way in the New Testament, Paul was raised in the city of Tarsus. Now, Tarsus was a Greek philosophical epicenter, meaning he grew up around a lot of really smart people who talked philosophy all day and Greek culture all day. So he grew up understanding that culture, their beliefs, and their language. But he was also raised in a Jewish household and trained under a strong Jewish rabbi. So he, was, he grew up in both worlds. And decades later, God used Paul to take the church, which started off as a Jewish movement, to take the church and move it into a global movement, to reach the Roman Empire and to speak into those languages and those cultures. God used Paul to be a bridge between the Jewish and the Gentile world, and the church expanded, and we're here today because of that. So God used Paul's past as a bridge um, for his present. I think a lot of times God does the same for us where our past experiences can shape us and prepare us to speak into situations today because we have experienced that. And we can bring the kingdom of God into these situations because we have familiarity with both. God uses our past to prepare us. In closing, I just say this again, that leadership is not about platform. It's about influence. I want us to reread the passage in Exodus that we read at the beginning of this sermon. I want us to read it with this question in mind. Who are the real heroes of the story? Who are the real heroes of this story? Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So who are the heroes of this story? The women. It wasn't the, the head of the household in that context, the, the, the father, that saved Moses. It was the mom. She hid him. She protected him. She sent him down. His sister followed him down the river. It wasn't the Pharaoh, the person of great influence and power in the story, that was the hero, that was the leader. He was actually the villain. He's the one that issued the edict to kill the children. It was the Pharaoh's daughter who came and, and rescued the women in the story, counter to the way stories were told back in the day, were actually the heroes and leaders in this story. They were the, the influencers. They didn't have a platform. They didn't necessarily have power or position. But they used whatever influence they had to save and protect Moses. There's a quote from Mr. Rogers that I love that I think fits really great with this story. Mr. Rogers says, When I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, Look for the helpers. 
you always find people who are helping. To this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words, and I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in this world. At the end of Exodus 1, when the Egyptian midwives refused to follow the Pharaoh's orders, and then all throughout Exodus 2, literally every sentence of the story I just read today, Exodus 2, 1 through 10, literally every sentence is a heroic act after another from a woman in the story. These were the helpers in the story. These were the leaders. These were the influencers. And I think God has called us as, as a people of God, as the church, to be helpers. In fact, historically, the church has led the charge on helping in times of famine and disease, in times of war, in times of brokenness, in times of injustice throughout history. Since the church has existed, it has acted and led from the position of being humble servants who help, who bring healing, who bring refuge, who bring justice. I think over the past century, two centuries, you can go three centuries, we've lost that narrative the church has conflated influence with power, and we've sought power and almost ignored our capacity to influence where we're at. And I think Jesus wants us to remind ourselves of his humble beginnings as the son of a carpenter who showed kindness and empathy, who, who showed wisdom and truth and grace, and used his influence even before he had a platform for the good of other people. God is calling us to be Helpers who use whatever we have to bring about change and creation and restoration. So I'm going to close with a few questions. The first would be, how has your past prepared you? How has it impacted you? For some of us, we're still hung up on our past. And it's a process for me. It's been years of a process of letting go, of grieving, of forgiving, of moving on to not let my past hold me back from who I can be in the present and in the future. So how has your, your past impacted you? How has it prepared you for who you are today and how you can speak truth and beauty into the world, how you can act and live truth and beauty into the world? How has your past shaped you? The second question is, where do you have influence today? Everyone in this room has influence in our relationships, in our jobs, in our community, in our city. Everyone has influence, so where is your influence? What relationships do you have influence in? And tied to that, where in those spheres of influence do you, are you frustrated? Do you, see, do you sense injustice or brokenness? And then the last question would simply be, how will you use your influence? What are you going to do in the circles in where you do have influence and lead out in that way? God has created us in his image he has used our past to, to shape us and prepare us. He has put us in positions of influence and spheres of influence around us, and he's calling us to, to lead out like the women in Exodus 2, to use our influence for the sake of justice and healing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the story of Exodus and just how beautiful and rich it is. I pray as we go along this journey, as we go along and study the different aspects of Moses and his developing leadership, that you allow us to connect with that and resonate with that. But I also ask that you just let us slow down for a second and say, where do we have influence and how can we use it? Just to be your kingdom here in Richmond, in Christ's name, amen.